man, I was in the business from 2001 till about 2005. This is Luke St. Germain. He wrote the only book that exists about the business. It's called Ringing the Bell. So about four years total. I spent uh, about two years going through the fields, uh, two years running an office. Luke's story is pretty amazing. He gets recruited pretty quickly out of college, then in turn manages to recruit his girlfriend and his best friend and convince them to move across the country to live in a rodent-infested flophouse with their co-workers. By the time I left, I, the whole experience was just so intense and crazy and weird and funny and just, <clears throat> it takes a long time to decompress from it. Maybe I still even haven't, who knows, but I just got to the point where I was like, man, there's some good stories there. Like, this is a good story. Like, I, I want to tell the story before I forget it. During his time in the business, Luke primarily worked door-to-door sales for the Quill Office Supplies campaign. But weekend team days and road trips allowed him to learn about each of the business's other tentacles. I don't know how familiar anybody listening would be with kind of what, what the setup was like, but um, the team days were every every Saturday, right? Because there are all these different offices out there, and a lot of them are working on different uh, campaigns. It was on one of these glorious team-building weekends when Luke got some first-hand experience with one of the more controversial campaigns in the business, third-party charity fundraising. You, know, you kind of figure out what's happening as you go, you know, like you don't really know what, what, what to expect or where you're going to go. Right. So first stop, you always go to the warehouse, you pick up your stuff. So you pick up your boxes and your, your merchandise and, and, and that sort of a thing. And we ended up going to, um, God, I think it was a Kmart. We set up a table, had teddy bears, kids books, just, you know, and for supplies, we had sheets of paper and we had some fingerprinting pads. And the pitch was whenever somebody would walk by, we'd say, say, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're out here, you know, doing, you know, doing fingerprinting, you know, for for kids safety. Uh, we're doing free fingerprints. You know, we, we, would you like, you know, to have your kids fingerprinted? So people would come over and we would take their kids fingers, put them in the ink pad, put together, you know, some fingerprint stamps for them, um, hand them to the parents and then say, hey, and while you're here, um, would you like to, you know, support the cause by, you know, picking up a, you know, like a discount toy, you know, it's at a, you know, better price in the store. It's for charity. If you want to, you know, support other kids being fingerprinted, you can, you know, buy something off our table. Like the parents would ask us be like, oh, so, so now what? Now, now they're fingerprinted. Like, do you give them to the police? Do they, does anything happen with them? And they're like, no, no, they're just here. They're now you have your kids. Now you have your kids fingerprints in case anything happens. And I'm like, okay, great. So now you have your kids fingerprints. Like what you do with it is up to you. We're not, we're not going to do anything with it, but now you have your kids fingerprints. So, so it was kind of a weird experience. And, but I didn't really care because by the end of the day, we'd cleared off the whole table and um, you know, and if we're this far along in the podcast, I guess people know about ringing the bell. So, you know, that's the important thing. Sold, sold everything, rang the bell twice and called it a day. There are obviously plenty of reasons why the third party charity division is controversial. Not least of which is the percentage of the donation that gets kept by the business. God, it was so long ago, I'm not gonna remember the exact number probably, but I remember asking questions about it when I, when I got back to the office and I believe the number was around 5%. 
I believe. Five percent went to the charity, or you kept five percent? Uh, that five percent went to the to the charity. Um, that was my understanding of it. So that was a little a little head scratching to hear that, but you know, I guess I figured that's just the way it worked, and five percent is better than nothing, and. Hopefully I would never have to do that again. And <laughs> According to a 2014 investigation by The Guardian, most of the money that was raised for these charities was kept by the business. Of the $12 million they raised for the Special Olympics, AFCO kept $7 million, or 57%. Other administrative costs for the program ate up another 39%, leaving the Special Olympics with a whopping 4% of the 12 million bucks raised in its name. Which, as awful as it sounds, is still a big win for the Special Olympics, which is happy to receive a $500,000 check they otherwise would not have gotten. The donation transactions are made via monthly debit charges, but according to the fine print and documents obtained by The Guardian, APCO fundraisers for the World Wildlife Fund were allowed to keep 85% of all the donations made during the first year with the charity recouping a greater share in the following years, assuming the donor continues to allow these recurring debit charges for multiple years. Of course, nobody explains all this to the potential donors that they pursue on street corners. To the contrary, they go to great lengths to hide the fact that they're actually soliciting money for a private third-party MLM. Those were the accusations I'd read online from multiple lawsuits around the world And that was the experience I had here in Chattanooga when a top-tier event marketing company named VP Rush opened its doors and started spamming job ads for their new charity marketing campaign. VP Rush is a company that believes in morals and values. Rush is a company that is always looking to leap the extra mile. Student mentality. mentality. The best development is self-development. Work in teams while reporting to a dedicated team leader who offers support and training. Every day, mentality, mentality. from entry level to a leadership Leadership. training and guidance from leaders, leaders, team members. Responsibilities include sent the benefits of supporting various Various charitable charitable projects. Mentality, mentality, must be over 18. And then I started seeing these guys on street corners downtown, where, true to the script, They claimed to work directly for the charity, in this case, the Humane Society. They handed me and everybody who passed some vague laminated pie chart that somehow was supposed to demonstrate that 98% of my donations would go directly to helping animals. They were all so happy and so excited until I asked if they actually worked for VP Rush or the MLM company behind it. At that point, they suddenly had no desire to talk to me. They said they were on a road trip from a Credico office in Atlanta, and despite whatever trash I'd read online, the business was actually amazing, and that his entrepreneur mindset allowed him to recognize that opportunity, while my employee mindset would keep me working thankless jobs the rest of my life. (laughs) Honestly, the guy was such a condescending, smarmy little prick about it that I couldn't hold my tongue. I told him to his face that he was trying to scam people without even realizing he was the one getting scammed. 
scammed into working seven days a week for no money so he could live with his co-workers and call another man his owner. He actually really did bristle at that last dig, and through a clenched jaw, he assured me that he never called another man his owner. But I knew that was bullshit, and so did he. As I was walking away, feeling all smarmy and self-satisfied myself, something about that scene rang a bell. Guy standing on a street corner, soliciting for some charity, then a random stranger accusing him of running a scam. I'd seen all that before. (laughs) Only I was the solicitor. And then I realized, holy fucking shit, I had worked for the business too. It was only for a few days. It was probably like 2010. The Great Recession had recessed three of my jobs, and I was couch surfing in LA because I couldn't afford rent anymore. But I was playing in bands, so the whole situation didn't seem that unusual. Anyways, I was always applying for jobs on Craigslist, and I remember being super stoked to tell my drummer that I had an interview with this company that did charity fundraising. 500 bucks a week, plus benefits. I remember that turned out to be a lie. You could qualify for that salary once you earned a certain promotion, which I was told would only take a couple of weeks, even though none of the 10 employees in the room that day had qualified for it yet. And I remember telling my drummer how crazy it was that they expected us to come in in the mornings and the evenings for meetings that we would not get paid for. And I remember politely informing my owner that I would not be engaging in that practice. I think her name was Fran. She was small, young Asian lady, short hair. She always wore slacks and a Brixton cap, like a London cabbie. But I remember thinking she had the demeanor of a programmed cyborg. In retrospect, the fact that I refused morning and evening meetings probably made it screamingly obvious to Fran that I would never take this job seriously enough to make it all the way to ownership. And therefore, there was no real need to keep me as an employee. There's not much I remember about those few days on the job, but I do remember soliciting for Greenpeace outside of the Trader Joe's in West Hollywood, and some dude came up and he yelled in my face about how he loved whales, but he hated my corrupt industry, and how he would never donate to Greenpeace until he stopped working with us. I remember thinking it was really weird that Fran and her team of 10 pathetic losers operating out of a shitty, empty office in Koreatown had such a powerful reputation. Yeah, but whatever. I didn't really care. Supposedly I was going to get 10 bucks an hour. But then I remember somehow my first and only paycheck ended up being for 60 bucks. So I never bothered going back. In his book, Ringing the Bell, Luke St. Germain says that when he was recruited, they bragged that the business had 13,000 offices all around the world. When Luke did his taxes, after a year of owning one of those offices, he saw that he had employed 150 people. He had interviewed 5,000. So if you multiply those numbers times the 13,000 offices, you get 2 million employees and 65 million interviews. I was job hunting for several years, so I guess it was just 
a matter of time before they got a shot at me too. I couldn't find much about VP Rush online. The office was located in a nondescript building next to the stinky old chicken plant. The CEO was Isaac, a former gospel performer. I stopped by to talk to him, a few times actually. But I didn't try and secretly record any of those conversations because I naively hoped that I could establish some trust with him and could maybe one day conduct a proper interview. But that didn't happen. Like most owners I spoke with, he initially tried to deny that he was part of the business and seemed freaked out that I even knew the business existed. I gently reassured him that I was actually a big fan of the business and he agreed to give me a copy of Limitless Magazine in hopes that I would just go away. I came back a couple months later and I got another copy of Limitless Magazine. But when I came back for the third time, his admin seemed really pissed off to see me. She said I could not have any more copies of Limitless Magazine. So I waited another couple months and I went over in the evening when the sun was going down, hoping to catch him when he was all alone. Instead, his reps were just returning for the evening meetings. So I turned to head back to my car, but it was too late. Isaac, the CEO, had seen me. He came out. He took me to a far corner of the parking lot. He demanded to know why I was there. So I told him all about my awesome podcast and how I'd hoped to interview him or one of the owners of these companies. He told me he wouldn't grant me an interview. And he would not let me record his explanation of why he would not grant me an interview. Which basically came down to the fact that he didn't know me and had every reason to think that I was not a reputable journalist, mainly because I was wearing shorts and a Sizzler t-shirt. And to be fair, those are two excellent points. But I explained my situation. The same law of averages that meant he had to pitch DirecTV 100 times to make one sale also applied to their employment process. So for every one person like Isaac, the CEO, who was supposedly wealthy and successful, there were hundreds and hundreds more who felt they'd been lied to and scammed. And those people were all too happy to share their stories. Isaac, the CEO, was unswayed by the logic of my argument. So since he was unwilling to explain his own business, I had to find some people willing to do it for him. Uh, my name is Marinda. Um... I don't know what else you need to know about me. This is Miranda. There's nothing else you really need to know about her. I went to an interview with VP Rush in May of this year, of 2019. They were holding interviews downtown, like down by the river, in these weird little teeny tiny like trailer style rooms. And someone had taped a piece of printer paper to the door and like in sharpie just in really terrible handwriting it was written uh vp rush interviews and so again i felt like i was about to be kidnapped and i opened the door and went in and there were like two what looked like interrogation rooms it was like a hallway and on one side was a window where you could see into a little room with a table and on the other side was again a window and you could see into the room and it was like a waiting room with a futon folded in half to be a couch 
and some chairs against a wall. And I went in and I sat on the futon. And this kid came in and sat down beside me on the futon. I just remember looking at him thinking, oh my god, he's a baby. Because he was like, maybe 20. Maybe. And he was wearing this giant suit. Like, that clearly didn't belong to him. And it was like a grown man's suit. And he was talking my ear off. He was asking me about, like, where I worked and my university career and my degree. And I was like, so what about you? Where do you go? And he got really excited. And he was like, oh, I went to Harvard. And I was just like, okay, dude. Like, I tried not to roll my eyes. I tried to look super serious. <laughs> and I said, that's cool. What'd you study? And he just said, business. And then, as if right on cue, Isaac, the CEO, entered the room. Miranda remembers... He had a really awesome suit. A super colorful, like, fancy suit. Um, like, he, he did not look like he belonged in the room that we were sitting in. Um, he came in the doorway and asked the little boy I'd been talking to to go in for his interview. And that boy jumped up, like, super stoked, ran into the interview room. And I just kind of watched them go, and I started to get really uncomfortable, just like... This was not a good place, and I shouldn't be there. So, while Isaac, the CEO, and the kid from Harvard were busy, Miranda tried to quietly sneak out. And I had almost made it to my car, like, maybe a minute later. Um, and the boy, whatever his name was, ran outside after me. And he was like, I got it! I got the job! He was so happy. And I... Knew, like, there was no way in maybe three minutes of talking that this dude was like, oh my god, you went to Harvard? You're hired. Like, there was no way. And I just kind of smiled. I was like, good job, dude. And I got in my car and drove away as fast as I could. I talked to several people like Miranda, who bailed on the interview after being creeped out by the overall shadiness of VP Rush's operation. But there were a few others, like Steven here. Who stuck around. It sounds too good to be true. I met Stephen in a park about 40 minutes outside of Chattanooga. It was windy, and I recorded this on my phone because I'm not a fucking journalist. I'm just a stoner dad, so I'm sorry about the noise. You have a minimum base salary of $35,000, but once you actually get on, uh, you sign a form that says the position is commission only. And just selling a bunch of stuff that people don't want to buy. Um, for example, B VP Rush, they sold Comcast. And everyone knows Comcast is pure shit. Steven told me he saw a lot of red flags during his time at VP Rush. And a lot of those things we'd heard before. But <laughs> here's one you haven't. They seem to have very low standards of what kinds of people they hire. There was one guy they hired who was fired from Walmart because he's been in jail for a while. He didn't really tell me what he did, but uh, what he told me was it uh, was the kind of thing that 
If he tells people, they look at him differently. And uh, at the time when he was doing it, he did not um, realize that he was doing it. So I assume he was being accused of rape. Steven did not choose to stick around VP Rush for very long. And he doesn't really have a good thing to say about any of his experience there. I mean, I work about 12 hours a day, drove an hour both ways to work, um, and I made zero dollars to show for it. At no point during Steven's three-step interview process, or during his week of employment, did anyone explain that he was part of the business, or that the business was an MLM? But in spite of their attempts to confuse and obscure the truth of what was happening, Stephen was actually pretty damn perceptive. About half of the workday is just as meeting and training, and looking back, this was really ominous. It was false positivity. Um, if you've ever been to a convention for an MLM, uh, like it works or anything like that, they give you these hour-long um, workshops of positivity. You can make as much money as you want. If you keep trying, you'll get there someday. There's no cap. You can be the next CEO of one of these companies. Um, and they tell you about this shit for about three or four hours every day. I remember driving back and thinking uh, all of this stuff that he spends half a day telling me feels almost like indoctrination. Oh shit. I think we're about to use the C word. You know which one I'm talking about, right? Cult. To me, this is the most tantalizing and fascinating aspect of the business. Is this shit a cult? When you uh, uh, talk to some of the people who are quote-unquote CEOs <laughs> of these businesses, which legally there can't be a CEO because it's not an actual corporation, but they call themselves CEOs, they, um, like, they sound, um, uh, like they are trying to brainwash you, uh, or they've been so brainwashed themselves. According to Stephen, he was volunteering for about four hours of unpaid indoctrination a day. So, in only his one week of working there, that was 20 hours. Think about that shit. 20 fucking hours of hard sell for an MLM in one week. And that's just Steven. Because for a guy like Isaac, the CEO, who's been in the business for a couple of years, he's probably volunteered for about 3,000 hours of these meetings. And 3,000 hours? That'd make a believer out of anybody. Have you ever heard of the bite model? Yes, I have. 
The bite model is used to explain the strategies cults use to brainwash and control the minds of their members. Bite stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotion control. It includes things like the use of propaganda, the use of a coded internal language, rejection of any thoughts deemed negative, restrictions on time, restrictions on clothing, sleep deprivation, use of chance and memorization tasks to block conscious thought, forced cohabitation, financial dependence, and isolation from friends and family. Um, I watched a video um, comparing MLMs uh, to cults using the bite model. And after I watched that video, I looked back at my experience with VP Rush and I did have uh, all four aspects of the bite model applied to my experience. At the end of the day, the business and other MLMs are only able to sell their impossible dreams to people who are willing to buy them. And Steven just wasn't buying their bullshit. Uh, I remember one of my coworkers texting me and I told him um, what was going on. And I told him I was driving an hour both ways to work, working 12 hours and making no money. Um, and he was like, I, I'll see you tomorrow. And I just, and I did not say anything back to him. So he did not see me tomorrow. <laughs> In addition to VP Rush, I tried to find out more about Paramount Consulting, which had come from Jacksonville, Florida, and cycled through two owners and two names in its first few months. But just like Isaac, the CEO, Tony, the CEO of Paramount Consulting, seemed deeply uncomfortable when I showed up at his office and asked if he was part of the business. And despite my attempts to build goodwill by visiting every few weeks and being really cool and friendly and supportive, he wouldn't let me interview him. And he wouldn't let me record his explanation of why he wouldn't let me interview him. But... He did invite me back to his office so I could try to explain myself, and we ended up chatting for like 45 minutes, and holy fuck, I wish I had secretly recorded it, because the shit that he was saying was fucking bonkers. I found Tony the CEO to be maddeningly evasive, but I couldn't tell if he was lying to me or if he was in such deep, deep denial that he was actually lying to himself. By the end of our little verbal sparring match, we were actually both having a pretty good time, and I was making him laugh, and he told me that if I promised to leave him alone for the next six weeks, that maybe, maybe, he'd agree to an interview. <sighs> so I waited six weeks, and I returned to see if I could get that interview, but Tony, the CEO, said no. So fuck it. I'm just going to perform the paraphrased highlights of that bonkers interview I did with him six weeks ago. And to assist me, I've invited my other niece to help perform the scene. She has selected the stage name of Sunflower. On tonight's episode of Sitcom Theatre, 
the esteemed American actress Sunflower will perform the role of Tony, the sitcom owner, who is annoyed that someone wants to ask a question about his business. Why is this fascinating to you? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But one, because it's all totally out in the open, and yet extremely secretive. Nothing is secretive here. Tony, are you kidding? Everything is secretive here. I'm talking to you right now. That's not secretive. Dude, you know what I'm talking about. All those mysterious job ads and the attempt to hide the company's name. I'm not hiding anybody's name. Yes, you are. I am my own boss. I don't know what you read online. Dude, in your lobby, there's a picture of you with Vera Gwynn and Gary Paulson, the president and the CEO of Zincor. And look, behind your desk, dude, they signed a giant novelty check for that you. That doesn't mean I work for them. So, like, this is all just a huge... Coincidence? They work for me. Sidcore works for you? Yes, they are my client. And DirecTV is your client too? No, DirecTV is their client. Okay, right, but DirecTV and Sidcore exist without you, while you do not exist without them, am I right? I still want to know why you're so fascinated with the business. Ah, because of that. Because of that right there. Because you just tried to answer my question with another question of your own. And because any time I try to talk to one of you guys about the business, you seem paranoid and freaked out and afraid that I even know it exists. I'm not afraid. I'm perfectly calm. I just don't feel the need to explain my business to anybody who comes in here. Tony, the other day, me and my kid went to the donut store. And I said, what kind of donuts do you have? And they told me. And that whole exchange seemed really super normal. But if I asked what kind of donuts they had, and they got all freaked out and said, how do you know we're a donut shop? How do you know we have donuts? Why are you here asking about donuts? Well, that would seem like a little suspicious, right? But we're not a donut shop. We're a private marketing. <laughs> marketing? We're a private marketing firm. <laughs> Great job, Sunflower. <laughs> yes, but you're an extremely public private marketing firm. No, we aren't. Yes, you are. All you do is post pictures of you guys side-hugging each other and talking about how happy you are and bowling and eating B-dubs and begging everybody to join you. And you constantly spam job ads. I don't spam job ads. Dude, are you kidding? You post job ads everywhere, like constantly, like every day. That's not true. I post one job ad a week. But you post one job ad? Just one a week? Yes. Well, okay. I'm, I'm going to have to double check on that later. But the point is, you guys are super eager to talk about the opportunity with anyone and everyone you can, just as long as they don't know what that opportunity is. But if somebody does, like me, well, suddenly you can't talk about the opportunity anymore. I have to protect my business, and I don't know who you are. Dodie, if this opportunity is so great, why don't you just explain the opportunity in the job ads? I do. No, you don't. I just sat in the lobby and listened to your receptionist try and avoid answering that exact question on the phone. Some dude kept asking if this was a sales job, and she kept saying, No, it's client acquisition for a Fortune 500 firm. That's what we do here. Ah, okay, look. If somebody asks, what's the job? There's a really simple and really direct and really easy way to answer that question. It's... 
You'll be selling DirecTV inside Costco. There's so much more to the job than that. Okay, like what else? Like management training. Yeah, but like management training of selling DirecTV at Costco. It's about personal growth and development and achieving your best and overcoming the doubts that hold you back. Yeah, dude, I saw that in the ads, but the one thing I didn't see was the part about how most of your day will be spent selling DirecTV inside of Costco. Oh, come on, job ads never explain every single detail of a job. Like, if you see a job ad for a janitor, it doesn't say, at three o'clock, you clean the windows. And at 3.30, you sweep the floors. Yeah, dude, but that's because everybody knows what a janitor does. And nobody knows what a sports-minded event marketing specialist does. Sure they do. Tony, stop trying to sell me a product that I'm not buying. Just be real with me. I'm being real. No, you don't describe the job because you know that if you did, nobody would want it. And that's why you lie about it having salary and benefits. It's not a lie. Tony, there is no salary and there are no benefits. It's all up to you and how much you sell. Yeah, but saying the job has a salary and benefits is a lie. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's called a lie of omission and that's when you intentionally leave out key details so that people draw false conclusions. That's not a false conclusion. There's literally no limit to how much money you earn. So, okay, you're telling me that in the year 2019, selling DirecTV inside Costco can make me a million bucks. Hey, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme, okay? I tell all my guys that. You're not gonna make a million bucks in your first year. Okay, so how many years does it take to make a million bucks? You can make a million bucks in your second year. Okay, so you've been in the business for five years. Are you a millionaire? I earned a million bucks in my office one year. Uh, okay, well, that doesn't mean that you made a million bucks, but whatever. Okay, you said your office made a million bucks? In one year, yes. So, okay, hold on. Like, a million bucks was your take, so that's, what, 10%? You're telling me that your office personally drove $10 million in DirecTV sales? At the same time, DirecTV is losing about a million customers a year? <laughs> I can't explain how the finances work. Those are company secrets. None of this makes any sense to me. The only way to understand it is to do it yourself and see. All right, fine, Tony. Is all that crazy shit online I read true? Do you live with your coworkers? No, I am a grown man with a family. Do other people in the business live together? It's a big business. I can't speak for everyone. Okay, well, are you married to somebody in the business? Yes, but we didn't meet in the business. We were together before the business. Tony, is this all a cult? A cult? What, a cult. what does that word even mean? It's such a hard question to answer because I feel like I could say yes or I could say no, and it's one I've given a lot of thought to. This is Luke St. Germain again, the author of Ringing the Bell. At the time, I would have said no, but the thing is, it's such a tough thing to get out of. I mean, I'll never forget. It was probably the hardest decision of my life. Decision of my life. Decision of my life. And it was terrifying because I really didn't think there was anything else out there for me.
didn't have any friends outside of that. You know, you move around and everybody you know is in it. Everybody you know is in it. In that sense, it definitely did feel like it by the time I left and in, in, in the sense of a cult being just this kind of tight-knit, you know, has its own culture, you know, has its own hierarchy, you know, has its own sort of rules that are different from the outside world. It's one of those interesting questions, man. I really feel like you could say yes or no to it. And I would, if I had to give a yes or no answer, then I'd say sure. Yeah. I asked Luke why he thought it was so hard for me to find people here in Chattanooga who were willing to talk about their experience in the business. And he gave me a pretty interesting insight. Like, you get sort of embarrassed by some of the things that you did. Like, some of the things that I thought and the things that I told people, you know, because I thought it was true and then later realized it wasn't. And I was like, oh, my God, I told so many people that because I believed it. And now I don't. And what is what does that mean? Like, am I, like, was I manipulated? Did I manipulate somebody else? Were we just wrong? Did we just not get it? Like, you have these questions like that and it makes it very hard to talk about because you know part of it is not fully understanding how you let yourself go as far as you did and then the other part of it is just not really expecting people to understand I, I that would be my answer I guess I'm sure it's different for everybody you know it's people have their own motivations for it but that's that's probably what it'd be for me and so finally after a long but very amusing year of researching these companies and trying to interview some local owners. It looked like I had struck out. But then, something very interesting happened. Something that took this whole crazy marijuana-fueled story right back to where it started. And I'll tell you all about it. Next time. Oh yeah. Are you getting a contact high from this song? If so... Send your thanks to Malele Roots. Also, thanks to Tommy Sandy Claus for all the scary cult music. And thanks to me for all the other music. Because that was good, too. Um, and thanks to Pizza for being delicious. 